All right, good evening. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 22. Last time we were together, we looked at uh, chapter 21, and we saw David uh, in this really interesting time of his life, probably one of the richest times, and certainly it was probably one of the most difficult times, no doubt, of his life, as he's really God's anointed king, but yet in exile and running for his life because of Saul and you have to remember that when David was running from Saul, it wasn't just for a few months. It was a, a, a handful of years, um, maybe even up to 10 years, somewhere in that area. He was um, running for his life, and Saul just being completely unhinged and not willing to uh, surrender to the Lord's will, certainly filled with jealousy and envy of David, because David was a great warrior. David was a wonderful musician. He was a very gifted man. And Saul was everything David wasn't. <laughs> David was just a, one of those men that I, I, I can't wait to meet in, in glory. And just because he um, was just such a remarkable fellow. And, but we, we saw that he was running for his life. And David, as he leaves Jonathan and Gabeah, he goes to Nob, which is a city just northeast of Jerusalem. And at this time, the, the priesthood at Nob was, uh, consisted of at least 85 priests there. And we believe that's where the tabernacle was. And it's, that's where it, actually where it was. Because uh, earlier in Samuel, we find out that the Philistines, around chapter 4, chapter 5 area, they destroyed Shiloh, which was the place where the tabernacle was set up since the days of Joshua. But now that the Philistines had destroyed that, the, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the, the altar, everything moves to Nob, which is not too far away from Jerusalem, actually. Some people believe that it was actually on the Mount of Olives. Uh, certainly it was less than a mile and a half, maybe two miles at the max, um, this area called Nob. In fact, it's one of those areas as we're dra- traveling when we go to Jerusalem, when we're down in the uh, Jordan Valley, and as we make our ascent to Jerusalem, when we go up the hill, the mountain range of Moriah, we make that steady descent, or ascent, I should say, and as we're going up, probably on the right-hand side or on the left, somewhere in that area was this city of Nob that uh, David fled to. And you remember Ahimelech and his other priests were there ministering, and David went there um, certainly to receive solace, um, to receive perhaps some food, because David, being on the run, was hungry. He was discouraged. He didn't have really a friend in the world except for Jonathan and Samuel. And Samuel was in Ramah, and now he's all by himself running. So he goes there, and remember, the priest gives him, out of the kindness of his heart, he, the priest didn't know his errand. I'm sure that Ahimelech thought it was a little odd that David would be traveling and coming to him, and there was no one else with David, as far as we know. They may have been hiding other places. We don't really know for sure, but David came to him alone. And for a man whose right-hand man, you know, or one of his, you know, Saul's mighty men, the captain of the guard, so to speak, the one who went and fought the battles, certainly there'd be a group of men with David. And David lied to the priest, didn't he? He said that he was there on some clandestine operation when really he was running from Saul. The priest had no idea, although I'm sure his suspicion was a little high, 
But he gave David food, uh, in the showbread off the table of the, uh, the showbread, the table of showbread. He gave him the, the bread off of that for him and his men. And he also gave him the sword of Goliath, which was there in memorial uh, before the Lord behind the altar. And so David takes off. And, and so now we come, and then he flees to Gath, uh, to Gath which is the hometown of Goliath. And he's uh, with Goliath's sword, and he approaches the king of Gath, Achish. And uh, Achish um, is not real fond of David. And it's kind of an interesting thing why David would even go to the enemy's camp. But isn't it funny that sometimes when those who hate you, everyone hates you, you go to the ones who hate you the less, maybe? Maybe the ones that you feel more safe. And unfortunately, that was the world for David at that time. We don't really condone David's behavior because because of his fear, because of his anxiety. We do strange things when we're in a place like that. So this is not one of David's finest hours, certainly in his life. And once Achish kind of starts to not really feel comfortable with David, and certainly the lords around him, his cabinet in a sense, they're not excited about David being there. Once he finds out that things aren't going well, he feigns to be a madman, remember, and he starts to spit on his beard, which is a very uh, shameful thing to do in the Middle East, uh, in that culture, and scratching on the door like he's some kind of madman. So David play-acts to be mad. Finally, Achish sends him away, and we come right to this chapter now. So look it with me, and let's just read through the chapter, and we'll go back. It says, David, therefore, chapter 22, departed from there, from Achish, from, from, uh, from Gath, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all of his father's house heard it, they went down there to him, and everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. And then David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother come here with you till I know what the Lord will do for me. And so he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. And when Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah, with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, you Benjamites. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? All of you have conspired against me, and there is no one of you who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. And then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul. He said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So the king sent to call Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were there in Nob. And they all came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, I am, Here I am, my lord. And then Saul said to him, 
Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him that he would rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day? So Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all of your servants is as faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And then the king said to the guards who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. And the king said to Doeg, You turn and kill the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and he struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Also Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. And now one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped, and he fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he will surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be safe. And so we see this is really, the, in my opinion, I think this is, if not the worst moment in Saul's life, it is certainly one of two. Because we know later on Saul will, he will consult a medium, a witch, which is really ascribing to God nothing and putting more confidence in the dark side putting more confidence in the devil, really, than putting confidence in God. But we know that the Spirit of God departed from Saul, and it came upon David. And so when a man is without God, he's gotten, he, he, he thinks that he has no place to, to resort to except the enemy's camp. And that's exactly what Saul did. But I think this event in Saul's life was probably the worst and the lowest point of his career. You know, to not only kill the, 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 the priests, you know, to, just to have no desire for them at all and, and to just and go through all of that and, and kill the people of God, the priests of the Lord. It's horrible. So let's go back to verse 1. This place, it says David departed from there. He departed from Gath and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. Uh, this, this cave of Adullam, actually it's a series of caves. It's not just one cave. It's a, it's, a, it's a hill, a very large hill. And the name of Adullam means refuge or sealed off place. And this location of Adullam is somewhere to the south of where David and Goliath squared off there in the Valley of Elah, about two miles south of that area where the battle occurred. And um, we were just there uh, last year um, in March where, where the battle occurred. And, and up on a mountain, you can actually see, um, we, we weren't able to go down to this place of Adullam. But, you, but there's a hill about two miles south of it, and you could see it from a mountain, the, the rough area. 
And it's littered with caves, with holes. And throughout Israel, this is very prominent, especially along the Dead Sea. When we travel along the Dead Sea, and if you go with us this next year in March, you'll, you'll see these things. And it's a great place to hide. If you're a convict or a fugitive, uh, Israel is filled with places you can hide. And I'm not, I'm not kidding. They're just miles and miles and miles of caves and places you can hide and it really is quite spectacular to see. But this is where David was. Not, not along the Dead Sea, of course. Um, he, he would resort there later. But he's more in the, in the line of, of Judah, uh, not too far away from where he uh, faced off with Goliath. So some people have thought of this cave as being near the, the area of Qumran, uh, and again, the, the area of Qumran is right there uh, along the border of the Dead Sea. We, we visit that place where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. You get to see Cave, cave 4 where they found complete scrolls of Isaiah. But throughout that whole region, and you guys remember, uh, uh, Gary, when we were there this last year, the, um, the whole mountain, the whole side is just filled with, they haven't even discovered all of them, you know. And because of earthquake activity in that area, which has happened several times. There's probably things buried in there that, we'll, that no one will ever know because uh, you can only do so much. We're talking, this is a lot of land, folks, and it's pretty a daunting task to see all that would take place. But some people believe that David hid, that that was the cave of Adullam somewhere in that area, but most people agree that it was further west, inland, in the land of Judah, and they pretty much identified it right there two miles south of where he, he killed Goliath. But um, it's a place about 500 feet high, again, with numerous caverns, some of which can hold two or 300 men at one time. And so that's Adullam. So let's look at verse 2 and notice that everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. That sounds like a motley crew, doesn't it? Sounds like the kind of guys you want to hang out with, you know? People who are distressed and discontent and in debt, it sounds like, you know, it doesn't sound too good, actually. But I love how the Lord uh, does the things like this. He doesn't need a, a polished group, you know, fresh out of West Point. You know, military strategists and trained in military. These guys were just a bunch of, you know, ragtag guys, but they became David's mighty men. And we see of their exploits later in Second Samuel 23. We find out what some of these men did and why they were called David's mighty men. But David has about 400 men with him. And of these 400 men, 37 of them are reported to being David's mighty men, among which Uriah the Hittite was one of them. You remember Uriah the Hittite? It was later on when David came into power. And remember, it was David or Uriah's wife that David had the affair with. Uriah the Hittite. This was one of David's mighty men. One of the men who would go with him on the battles that would protect him. And yet David, in a moment of weakness, sleeps with his wife. And then to cover up her pregnancy, he has Uriah killed in battle in an opportune moment to make him look like, to look benevolent and to take her under his wing. And then, oh, she's with child. He must have had a relations before, and now she's with child. And David, you're such a wonderful guy for taking this woman in, this widow, and, and now you're going to take care of Uriah's son. What a noble, wonderful guy. And David, of course, the Lord didn't let him get away with that. But Uriah was one of his mighty men. 
I love what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Paul says to Timothy, This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, speaking of Christ, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. But I, I love this spot in that verse where it says, If we died with him, we shall also live with him. And this, this is the attitude of these mighty men. These 400 men, 37 of them were mighty men, but the other 360-some or whatever, they, they were just men, women, you know, men. And David, um, you, these were part of his army, really. They were willing to die with him. Because he was being chased, it was very likely, actually, that they might die with him. Because remember, Saul had it as... Fingertips, great resources of armies, hundreds of thousands of men. And for only 400 men, they would have been no, no match for the, Saul's armies. And so they had to live as vagabonds. They had to be on the run. They had to live in exile. And I love what it says in Zechariah 2. It says, Who has despised the day of small things? And here we have the very germ, if you will, of David's David's army, just this 400 men, and, and, and they weren't all trained. They were, David trained them. And notice that God doesn't choose the, the high and the mighty. He doesn't choose the great and the most talented, the most gifted. He uses a ragtag group of guys. What does it say in Corinthians 1, verse 26? He says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen what? He's chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And such is the case today. God doesn't need a big fancy army. He can do a lot with very little. In fact, one of the hallmarks of God's power is he does a great deal with very little. Think of what he did through the nation of Israel. Think of what he did through just the, the tribe of Judah. Insignificant compared to the world population. Cons, you know, considering all the people groups, God would use them, not only to bring the Messiah into the world, but entrust to the Jews the very oracles of God. What an amazing responsibility that was. And yet God chose them, not because they were great, and he says this over and over in the scripture, but because they were small, they were insignificant. He goes, I didn't choose you because you were some great thing, because you were less than something. That's why I chose you, and that's God's way. So if you're feeling tonight like insignificant, if you're feeling like the world has got a, an edge over you, or other people who are high and mighty got an edge over you, guess what? You plus God is a majority in the world. But do we believe that? You plus God can conquer anything according to him. Paul would say that, wouldn't he? Even though I'm weak, I'm strong. So then David, verse 3, he went from there, he went from this, this place of Adullam, he goes to Mizpah of Moab. Mizpah literally means watchtower and there are many Mizpahs in Israel. There's at least three or four. And this one, actually, is not the one that's close to Ramah, where Samuel lived. This Mizpah was actually in the south. If you were to picture a map of the Dead Sea, and you were to go east, you would go to the very southern point of the Dead Sea, and then go east about 
uh, let me see, about 15 miles, you would run into Mizpah of Moab, of the king of Moab. And so David went there, and he said to the king of Moab, let my father and my mother come here with, with you until I know what God will do for me. That's kind of odd, don't you think? That David would go to one of the enemies of Israel? Especially when you consider back in chapter 14 that Saul just ransacked and totally destroyed the Moabites. And now another one from Israel is coming and saying, hey, will you watch my mother and my father and keep tabs on them? Hmm, that's kind of interesting. So, verse 4, he brought them before the king of Moab, and, he, and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. So why did David do this? David himself was on the run, and certainly his family back at home, his other seven brothers and his mom and dad, their lives were in jeopardy too because Saul would be looking out for them too because anything, any information, any intelligence he could find on David was valuable to him, and he would certainly put them in prison if he could and maybe even torture them. We've seen he's not above killing the, the servants of the Lord, the priests. He's not above that. So they would certainly be a target. And I love the fact that David, even though he's the youngest of eight, he's performing the duties of an elder son, isn't he? That's an elder son's job, the eldest, the firstborn. That would be his job to take care of his family. And yet his brothers were probably with him in this cave. And yet it's David who, because he's the captain over them, he's the one who arranges to make sure his mom and dad are in safekeeping. But why Moab? Why Moab? Very simple. Turn with me to Ruth. Ruth chapter 4. This is one of those moments where the light bulb goes off in your head. And I love this because why would a, a, a man of God, even though he wasn't acting like a man of God, certainly wasn't acting like a man of faith at times, especially in front of Achish, why would David go to the enemies of Israel? Look at Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, and we'll see the answer of why he went to Moab. Ruth chapter 4, verse 13, it says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, remember Boaz was a man of Judah, but Ruth was a Moabitess because her husband... Chalon, Chilion, uh, I believe it was Chalon or, or Malon or Chilion, had died. Remember, and Naomi brought Ruth back to Israel with her. But Ruth herself was a Gentile. She was of the seed of, really, uh, of Lot's two daughters. Remember, he had the incestuous relationship, and they gave birth to Ben-Ami, which is uh, uh, the children of Ammon, and Moab. Okay, those two sons. So all these people are really enemies. They, they, they didn't get along with the other 12 tribes of Israel. They, they were kind of like bad company. <laughs> and certainly because of their, they became enemies of Israel. But notice, Boaz, who is a, from Judah, he takes this Ruth Moabitess to wife. And she became his wife, and when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the woman said to Naomi, which was um, uh, Ruth's mother-in-law, she said, Blessed be the Lord who, who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel, and may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law, who loves you, speaking of Ruth, 
who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. And then Naomi took the child, lay him on her bosom, and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, This is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. (laughs) Do you see why now he takes his mom and dad to Moab? Because he's related to his mother. His great-grandmother was Ruth. His great-grandmother was Ruth, a Moabitess. So he takes his family, his mother and father, the, the thing that's most valuable to him, and he can entrust them into another enemy, really. But it's interesting because Saul, remember, destroyed many of them in his campaign in chapter uh, 14 or 15, actually chapter 14, and because David now was suffering at the hands of Saul, can you see the camaraderie now? The, the king of Moab's going, yeah, we know what that's like, David. We didn't like him either. He killed most of our guys, and he's, he's, he's coming after you too? Hey, I remember your grandmother. She was a resident of this place. We know her. We know her family. Her sister came back here. We, you're in good company here, David. You can stay here. You can bring your family here. And so David does. So he's down there in Mizpah of Moab. And now the prophet Gad said to David, verse 5, do not stay in the stronghold. In other words, don't stay there in Mizpah of Moab because it really was a stronghold. Don't get this confused with Adullam because he's in Moab right now. So the prophet Gad, who was really a, a man of God, a seer, a prophet, if you will, comes to David and says, David, don't stay here. He says, do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. And so David departed and he went into the forest of Hereth. The forest of Hereth was a few miles from his first place that he was hiding at Adullam. Just to the east, really, of where David was in Judah before he fled to take his parents to Moab. Just a few miles east of that was the forest of Hereth, and that is where David returned to. And I love the fact that David didn't strive with the prophet Gad. You know, he assumed that God was using the prophet for David's well-being, and he obeyed him. He wasn't this guy now that he's a captain over 500 men or 400 men. He wasn't feeling so important that he wasn't going to listen to anybody else. He was, a, he was not a stubborn, self-willed man like Saul. David was teachable, and that's why God could entrust so great things to him. Any great leader, if they're teachable, that's a really good thing. But when you, don't have a, when you have somebody who's not willing to learn, who is not teachable any longer, they usually become despots. They become, you know, um, they become a problem. <laughs> but God can use a man who is teachable, right? And that's why God loved David so much. He didn't think too much of himself, that he was so high and mighty that he couldn't learn. So David had this wonderful relationship with Gad, and he listened to him because he knew the Lord was speaking. And um, that takes a real, a, a real humble man, a man of a different character than Saul. Notice in verse 6, it says, Now when Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered in the forest of Hereth, not too far away from his first landing spot in Adullam, Saul was staying in Gabeah, which was further north, under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with a spear in his hand and all the servants standing about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, you Benjamites, 
Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? And see, this is so like the enemy to destroy the light and use this as a means to try and inflict guilt and remorse and David and cause more havoc. You know, Saul here is reminding these men that are loyal to him He's reminding them of their heritage, of their tribal loyalties. Saul is so insecure. Saul is so embittered and, and, you know, with hatred and jealousy. He's even fearful of those around him. So here he's reminding them of the tribal ties that they have and their sense of loyalty. And he even strikes a a, a goad, if you will. He kind of pokes David in the eye by calling him the son of Jesse. Everybody knew who he was. He was David. But when he says son of Jesse, it's somewhat lessening him. Does that make sense to you? When he doesn't use his name, he's saying son of Jesse. In other words, he's not that significant. He's just son of somebody else. He's not his own man. And certainly by this time, David was famous in Israel, although on the run now because Saul was a madman. And we see this phrase, the son of Jesse. We see Saul calling him this. Uh, Even back in chapter 20, we see it in verse 27 and verse 30 and verse 31. We also see Saul using this phrase in this very chapter that we're looking at in in verse 7 that we're looking at now, certainly in verse 8 and then in verse 9 and 13. He he never recalls or refers to David as David. It's always the son of Jesse because he doesn't want to ascribe any greatness to this young man who is better than him. And he was. God told him that through the prophet Samuel. A man better than you is going to take your place. Boy, that just frosted him. As soon as he said that, man, the bullseye on David's chest just got really big. You know, in fact, everywhere he went, there was a red X. You know, he could see it from space, from a satellite. But notice what Saul says to these servants. He says, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and of hundreds? Notice in this, by addressing the men that were loyal to him, first Saul creates doubt of David concerning that he would take care of them at all. He creates that doubt when actually David was a much better man. And we're going to see later on after Saul passes from the scene that David even takes in Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, under his wing and restores him and and blesses the, the rest of his family. He wasn't like Saul. Saul would kill the priests. David wouldn't dream of doing such a thing. But So first he creates doubt concerning that David would even take care of them. Secondly, he puts them in fear of conspiring against the king. Sounds like a guy who's pretty paranoid, wouldn't you say? So in verse 8 he says, All of you have conspired against me, and there is not one of you who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. There it is again. And there is not one of you who is sorry for me. You can almost hear the pity party. You can almost see his lower lip starting to quiver. You know, too bad the, you know, his lower lip starts to quiver and he starts to get that pouty face like you see your three-year-old when he doesn't get enough candy. None of you are sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait. Does that sound like David? Was David lying in wait for him? No, it was actually the other way around. This is how twisted Saul had gotten, and this is the way people get when, when unrepentant sin 
when they don't repent and, and they're, they're bent on this kind of anger and hatred and jealousy, pretty soon you begin to forecast the things that you're thinking from other, on, on other people, and you think that they're believing what you're thinking. And often it's not that case. This behavior is a result of a man who's got a guilty conscience. He's paranoid. Again, feeling sorry for himself. David wasn't lying in wait. Saul was lying in wait for him. This is why we should never presume too much about anything, you know, to be careful and not judge and allow the enemy to create problems in our heads that aren't true or based in fact or reality concerning other people that you might be having a problem or difficulty with. Concerning Saul's delusions and jealousy, one author wrote this. I thought it was really interesting. It really describes Saul pretty well. He said, it is not uncommon for people suffering from this kind of mental, emotional disorder to imagine that they are being conspired against, cheated, spied on, or followed, or that they are in danger of being poisoned or drugged or killed in some way. The root of such feelings is insecurity, and any threat, perceived or real, intensifies the sufferer's sense of vulnerability. They become fearful of all they see as rivals. They isolate themselves from those who do not believe they can be trusted, and they filter all information through a preconceived grid that ends in confirming their worst fears or suspicions. Have you ever been in a situation like that where you felt that way? The devil plays with your head about relationships around you when you're suspicious of somebody talking behind your back? And maybe, maybe there's good reason for you to feel that way, but your heart and your mind, and certainly the devil is encouraging this kind of thing and even throws some wood on the fire to make it even worse because even in your emotions, the devil loves to take over and he likes to exasperate those things. He likes to ignite those things to get you off to get you somewhere else, to get your mind on hate and destruction rather than on peace and restoration. Have you ever, this ever happened to you where you're so angry and bitter with somebody? You assume that they feel the same about you, and here you are preparing this battle in your head when it's only against your own thoughts. And later you find out that the other person had no idea. <laughs> they weren't thinking that at all. They weren't thinking of you at all. <gasps> Are you serious? Nobody's thinking about me. No, they weren't even thinking about you at all. <laughs> That's a humbling thing. You're so mad at somebody and you think that they're, they're planning your end or planning to revenge upon you. Am I the only one that's happened to? Have you felt that? Raise your hand if you're bold enough. Oh, good. The rest of you are lying. No, just kidding. <laughs> I'm only kidding. But it is. It's one of these things where the devil loves to play with our heads, and he's a master at it. He's been doing it since the beginning. Don't let him do it, folks. Your feelings and your thoughts are so precious, and if we start letting the devil into our heart and our mind, even as a Christian, you can let the, the devil play with your head, and you can start thinking evil things like Saul's doing, and he, he's imagining that David is conspiring against him. David could have killed him at least two times. We'll read about that coming up. Could have killed him twice, at least, if he wanted to, and he didn't. So verse 9, then answered Doeg, the Edomite. Notice he's an Edomite. He's from the, the tribe of, he comes from Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau? The promise went to Jacob, not to Esau. Esau is Edom. So when you hear Edomites, the Edomites came from Esau. Okay? It tells us that in the Bible. 
But Doeg, this Edomite, this natural enemy of Israel, he stands up. And he's the chief herdsman of Saul. Everyone else is quiet, so... You know, and he's saying, you guys have all deserted me. You're all conspiring against me. You don't care that my son is, you know, confederate with David. None of you are looking out for me. Nobody of you, you don't even give me gifts on my birthday anymore. You know, and he starts to pout, and then Doeg stands up and goes, oh. He says, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And again, this Doeg, his name means anxious or fearing. And he was an Edomite, a natural enemy. And then answered Doeg, verse 9, the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul. He said, I saw the son of Jesse. We looked at that. Sorry, I'm repeating. And verse 10, and he inquired of the Lord for him. So Doeg is saying, Ahitub, or excuse me, Ahimelech has inquired of the Lord for David, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Is that true? Yes, it is true. That's exactly what he did. But in context of Saul's freakish mind that he has, he did give him provisions, didn't he? He did inquire of the Lord. And he did give him David's, or Goliath's sword. So what's the problem here, the context? The context is everything. It's a half-truth. Ahimelech didn't inquire of the Lord for David against Saul. It wasn't against Saul. He inquired of the Lord for David, but not against Saul. Do you understand the difference? All all Saul can see is that he's conspired against me. And so all Doeg's got to do is just say, oh, he inquired of the Lord, and he also gave provisions, and he also gave him the sword. So automatically, Saul is already thinking, well, it's obviously he inquired against me. Obviously, he took the sword because he wants to kill me. And obviously, he gave gave him foods to keep him alive so that he could kill me. He's against me. I know he is. Ahimelech and all his 85 priests, they're all against me. Everybody's against me. And God's going, yep. (laughs) Everyone is against you, Saul. You need to turn to the Lord. But context is everything. So what Doeg said here was true, but the context was patently false. How important is context? Words. Out of context can mean something completely different. By us feeling... um, We need to be careful of this because friendships can be ruined when you take words out of context. Countries go to war over words taken out of context. So how important are words? Every word is important that we speak out of our mouth. That's why the Bible has so much to say about what comes out of our hearts and gossip and you know, speaking rightly and thinking, thinking good of people instead of thinking the worst all the time. But with one word can hurt a wife. One word from a wife can hurt a husband. And many of you know this because in all of our families, there are people somewhere in time. It could have been at a Christmas meal. It could have been at a birthday party. It could have been at someone's funeral years ago. And something was said by a relative of yours, and you've never forgave them for it. And it was just a word, a sentence. And instead of getting it right, you've continued to allow the thing to fuel inside your heart like a cancer. And to this day, you're still carrying it around. Wouldn't it be better just to go to the person and talk to them? So words are very important, and context is very important. 
So verse 11, the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest. So the Ahimelech is in, in the land of Nob. And so now Ahimelech and all the 85 priests, they've got to leave their ministry. And one of them gets left behind. We know that's Abiathar. And they left him there for a good reason because they don't know why the king's calling them. So they're thinking to themselves, we better leave one of you guys behind because if we don't come back, somebody needs to carry on this, this ministry. And thankfully they did leave him. But they all come. And they travel to the west for a number of miles. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. He was completely without guile. There was, no, there was no hiding anything. Ahimelech's wondering what this is all about. And I wonder if Saul's tone immediately is setting him on edge. He's like, Here I am, my lord. Like, what's next here? Why'd you bring all of us here? What's the problem? And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. He said, Here I am. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day? Now that's a lie. He didn't, he didn't, he's not lying in wait for, for Saul. He didn't have any weapons. David needed something because he knew he was being hunted. He's got to <laughs> take care of himself. So Ahimelech answered the king and said, Who among all of your servants is as faithful as David? I mean, think of this. He was really confounded by what the king is saying because the first time he's hearing it from the king, he's like, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. And he's being genuine. And he says, Far be it, you know, um, who among all your servants is as faithful as David? He came to me. He came, you sent him. That's what David told me. David lied to him. But Ahimelech believed him. And now he's standing before the king, and the king thinks he's done this you know, conspiracy and this, uh, this treacherous thing. And he's like, who's, who's as great and faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law who goes at your bidding and honorable in your house? He was on an errand from you, king. Why, what gives? <laughs> Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it for me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any in the house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. And that is the truth. He was completely caught off guard by the allegations that are being made against him. And the king said, you shall surely die. And I can imagine he's just going, oh my. What? <laughs> You will surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Again, Saul so unhinged, he wouldn't believe. Not that he couldn't, he wouldn't believe. And in displaced anger, he stretches out his hand and he has him killed. And the king said to the guards who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord. And remember, they, they're thinking to themselves, We're not going to do this. Are you, are you crazy? These are the men of God. These are the priests who do the, offer the sacrifices. We're not going to kill them. Saul, what are you doing? And at this point, you, 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 it shows here that, that they didn't lay a hand on the priests. Ah, but there's one in the group who's an enemy of Israel already. What's his name? Doeg the Edomite. He's like, I'll do it. And Doeg's thinking, hmm, I'm the chief herdsman right now. After I do this, man, I'm going to be the vice president. I'm going to be high on the, I'm going to sit right next to Saul at his feasts. I'm going to be his guy, the enemy of God, just like him. Boy, birds of a feather flock together, don't they? 
Saul just so filled with evil, and certainly Doeg the Edomite, just sort of like the Antichrist and the false prophet here. Both of them governed by the same spirit. But Abimelech believed David. There was no reason for him to inform the king of any wrongdoing because he thought he was on an errand for the king. I mean, case closed, right? He was completely unaware of the subterfuge. In verse 18, and the king said to Doeg, you turn, you turn, Doeg, you turn and kill the priests. And you can almost hear Doeg going, I can't believe, you know, I'd be glad to oblige. So Doeg the Edomite turned and he struck the priests. And he killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. What a travesty. What a horrible thing. Again, probably the worst thing that Saul had ever done. Also, verse 19, Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword both men and women. Notice this. This is a really interesting verse, and I want you to write a verse off to the side of this verse. I want you to look at it. We'll read it tonight, but write this verse along next to verse 19. Write 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 2 through 4. 1 Samuel 15, 2 through verse 4, and here's why. 1 Samuel 15, 2 through 4. Notice what it says in verse 19, and then we're going to skip over and read. Also Nob, the city of the priests, where they had just come from, he struck with the edge of the sword, notice, men and women, children and nursing infants, and, if that wasn't bad enough, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. Now, rewind the tape a few years to 1 Samuel chapter 15, or rewind it in some time. I don't know the exact time. Remember what happened when God told Saul to go and attack the Amalekites, the true enemies of God, not the people of God, but the true enemies of God, God tells Saul, wipe everything out, men, women, and children, everything. Don't take anything. Livestock, everything. Kill everything. God has his reasons. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 2, it says this. This is what God said to him previously. I will punish Amalek, God said this, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now, and here's the command from God to Saul, go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And so Saul gathered the people together and he numbered them and, and he went and he did that. But remember what he did, he spared Agag's life and he spared some of the livestock, the good things. And these were supposed to be the enemies of God. Now, read verse 19 again. <laughs> what Saul wasn't willing to do for the people of God, he was willing to do for the enemies of God. He spared the enemies of God, but now the people of God, it almost reads the same thing. It sounds like the same thing. Wipe out everybody. And he's like, okay, I'll do, you know... You know, he, he doesn't do it for Amalek, the enemies of God, but he does it for God's own people. How far can you slink? How far can you slope into this kind of bizarre behavior? That's pretty alarming, wouldn't you say? Verse 20, 
Verse 20, now one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar. Remember, he was the one of the priests of Nob that were left back in Nob. Thank God he was there, and he escaped, and he, and he fled after David. Now, this is going to be really interesting because this may have been God's providence because we're going to see that uh, Abiathar is going to take the linen ephod uh, with him as he comes to David. And this would be a way that, the, that he would divine uh, God's will in certain circumstances by certainly using Urim and Thummim for yes and no questions and inquiring of the Lord and things of that nature. So Abiathar, you know, comes and he's with David. He brings the ephod. And um, it's just really interesting if, if, you, if you remember Abiathar is actually a descendant from Ithamar. Remember Aaron had four sons? Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Nadab and Abihu were consumed by fire, remember, because they offered strange fire before the Lord. The next eldest in line would have been Eleazar. He should have been the high priest going forward after that happened. But what happened? In, in, in Judges, we find that a descendant of Abiathar instead was the high priest. Do you remember his name? Eli. Remember when Samuel was a little child? Eli was a high priest. What was he doing being the high priest when it should have been Eleazar's and his descendants? So now we have Ithamar, the youngest of the sons, and and Abiathar is a descendant of Ithamar. Now why this is so interesting is David's certainly not a respecter of persons. He brings Abiathar into his camp, and even when David is well established in his kingdom, who is his high priest? Zadok, who was a descendant of Eleazar, and he's also got another high priest, Abiathar, from Ithamar. And it happens that way until the reign of Solomon. And Solomon deposes Abiathar because he conspired against the king and tried to put Adonijah on the throne instead of Solomon. Does that make sense? So Solomon actually gets it right. He deposes Abiathar, and Zadok is the lone standing priest, and he's from the line of Eleazar. Why is that a big deal? Because God fulfilled a prophecy in doing that very thing. By Solomon doing the switcheroo and allowing Zadok, who was a descendant of Eleazar, the next in line from Aaron's sons, they should have been on the throne. They should have been the ones, instead of Eli and his sons, who were horrible examples, by the way. And in Solomon's reign, he puts things right, and he puts Zadok where he should be, and he deposes Abiathar, because Abiathar conspires to put Adonijah, King David's son, on the throne instead of the chosen son, Solomon. Does that make sense? There's a lot there. We're not going to go into it, but uh, it's very interesting because it it fulfills a prophecy, and we won't read this tonight because we're running out of time, but I would encourage you to write down 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 27 through 33, and read those verses in that context because that's the prophecy that the man of God came to Eli, and he prophesies, of Eli's line would not last. Because remember, Eli was from the line of Ithamar, and Abiathar was a descendant of Eli as well. And so God was going to pronounce judgment against that line of Ithamar, which ultimately resulted in going through Eli, then to Abiathar. So 
you can look at that. Again, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 27 through 33, God fulfilling the prophecy in Samuel's time by deposing Abiathar and putting Zadok, the son of Eleazar, in the high priest's place. So verse 21, it says, And Abiathar and David told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priest. And so David said to Abiathar, and here he's recollecting when he was on the run in the previous chapter and, and visiting the men there in uh, Nob. And David says, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. And he could hear the anguish of his heart. I have surely caused the death of all the persons of your father's house, Abiathar. That was my fault. Now, of course, David didn't know all of this. He didn't know that his actions that day would ultimately cause the, the death of those 85 priests. He had no idea. David told a lie. And, and here, here's, here's the thing about lying. It never ends well when you lie, does it? Lying is a sin. David didn't need to lie, but he did. And as a result of his lie, he put this family in jeopardy. He didn't know it at the time, because I believe that if he did, he wouldn't have said the lie. So verse 23, David says to Abiathar, he says, Stay with me, do not fear. Do not fear, Abiathar, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, but with me you shall be safe. And, and I love this because we are always safe in the Lord's, with the Lord's choice. There are blessings for obedience. And when we are walking in the Lord and abiding in Christ, we are safe. It's when we get outside of the will of God and start walking in our flesh, that's when we get hurt. That's when we really get hurt. But when we are walking with the Lord, he, he takes care of us. And he does so many things that we can't even see. I think even as a child of God, how many times I, I probably could have been killed by near misses and accidents. I remember uh, a few, uh, I don't know, it was about a year and a half ago or two years ago. I don't remember how, many, how long ago it was. There's a tree right, right on our, uh, we had a really bad windstorm and I hate wind. I really do. I lived in Florida and been through a number of hurricanes, and I've had enough of wind. I've seen what it does, and it scares me to death. And so the wind was really bad, and um, I remember driving uh, right under, uh, I think Kathy and I were driving together, and she went before me, I think it was, and then I went right behind her, and right as I went behind her, this huge, huge elm tree cracks falls over the road where my car was a few moments ago, seconds ago, like less than 10 seconds ago, maybe even five. And I thought to myself, if I would have paused, if I would have sped up, no, if I would have waited at any time for 10 more seconds that day, I would not be here. <laughs> That's kind of scary to think about. I almost wonder if there was some, you know, guardian angel holding that thing up going, not yet, not yet, okay, let it go, he's passed, you know, and, Things like that really boggle the mind. But when you're in God's will, nothing, you're untouchable. When you're in God's will, a nuclear bomb, you could have a, a target on your head, and, and Vladimir Putin could fire a nuclear rocket on you, specifically. Homing device, GPS, everything locked in. And it's not going to happen unless it's God's will. Not going to happen. 
Abide in Christ and you will live. And that's what David said to Abiathar. Stay with us. Stay with us and you're going to be safe. It reminds me of, remember in Acts 27, as Paul was making his final journey to Rome, because he knew he was going to talk to Caesar, and he did, and he talked to Caesar. And what was Caesar's response? Get out the guillotine. <laughs> David, or, uh, Paul talked to Nero, but it cost him his head. But on the way there, God wanted Paul to talk to Caesar. But on the trip there, remember what happened. A Euroclidon happened out there in the Mediterranean from his journey from Israel across the Mediterranean. And they came into this really bad uh, storm. And remember, uh, the ship was laden, and they, uh, they threw all the tackling off the ship, and they're, they're about ready to hit ground. And the, the men are freaking out that most of them have been seasick for days. They got green heads because they've been throwing up all, you know, for the last couple of days. They're dehydrated. They're sick. And Paul says, stay in the boat. The Lord told me that no one will die, but you have to stay in the boat. And they were, they were reeling down the, the, the boats on the sides, trying to get away and get up to shore. The waves are smashing the boat, hitting the rear of the boat, tearing it to pieces. And Paul says, the Lord stood by me and told me that, do not go down, guys. If you stay in the boat, you will be saved. And that's exactly what they did. They obeyed him, and they did. They lived. Stay in the boat, and you'll be safe. I think the principle is like that for us today. Are you in Christ? There's great safety in Christ. Are you one of Jesus's? Are you one of his own? Are you born again of the Spirit of God? Are you abiding in him? Do you know when you do, you're safe. And if God allows anything to happen to you, that's his business. But until he's, if he's not done with you, there's nothing that's going to happen. You are safe in him. Abide in Christ and experience the peace. And the, who wants to live in fear? Anybody here want to live in fear? Do you want to go through what we went through last year? Just carbon copy it, cut and paste it for several more years down the road? Oh, no, a new pandemic. Wonderful. Now you have to wear two masks. One's not good enough. You're going to have to wear another one, and you're going to have to get more shots. And the government's going to give you more money that they can't afford. And then they're going to raise your taxes. Pretty soon you have to put a lien on your house to pay the taxes. Because we're just, just give you money. Just give it to you. How much you need? 30 grand? No problem. We'll give you 30 grand. How about 40? You want 50? We'll just give it away. We'll give it to you now because... Next year, uh, we're going to raise your taxes. Stay in the boat. Stay in the boat, and you will abide in Christ. Abide in him. Amen? Let me read one psalm to you, and then we're going to stop there. Actually, I'm going to give you three psalms that are related to this passage that we're looking at. Let me give them to you, and then we're just going to read one of them. The first one is in Psalm 52, Psalm 57, and Psalm 142. Psalm 52, Psalm 57, Psalm 142. You'll see at the, at the header of the psalm, it talks about the events that we just read. And I would encourage you to reread this chapter. Reread those, those three psalms. And you'll get a deeper understanding of what David was going through during that time when he was in Adullam's cave. He wrote songs, psalms for the children of Israel. 
to about his experience you know, with Doeg. And in fact, let's just read this. It doesn't take long. And uh, let's look at Psalm 52, and then we'll stop here. It's a, um, nine verses. But at the very top of the psalm, it says, the end of the wicked and the, and the peace of the godly. And it says, to the chief musician, a contemplation of David, when Doeg the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. And let's read it. Certainly in context now, you'll understand this psalm a lot better. He says, Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? You can almost hear David speaking to Doeg specifically. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You love evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. Think about that. (laughs) That's what Selah means. Meditate on that. What do you think about that? <laughs> he says, you, verse 4, You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the living. What do you think about that? Think about that, Doeg. The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, Here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. And I love what David says, But I am like a green tree, a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. And I notice how he ends this in praise. He says, I will praise you forever because you have done it. David certainly writing this psalm, you know, You have done it, and in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name, for it is good. It is good. Notice David didn't get stuck in this imprecatory psalm of just saying, Lord, kick him in the teeth, knock his teeth out, and flush him down the toilet. He doesn't say anything like that. He has his moment. (laughs) They call those imprecatory psalms when it just sounds like, wow, he's really going after him. Lord, kick, kick in their teeth. But he ends the thing in praise, saying, Lord, you have saved me, you have delivered me, and I will praise you. In the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name, for it is good. It is good. It is good, isn't it? Isn't it good to love the Lord? Isn't it good to abide in him? I would encourage you to abide in him. By abiding in him, that means you're going to be doing less of other things. Less of other things that are not abiding in the Lord. Think about what you watch. Think about what you read. Think about what you see, the news that you take in. If you're one of those people into social media, think about that. Abide in the Lord and less of those things, and you'll have a greater peace. And I'm a beneficiary of that because I've been doing that for a while now, and I have a much greater peace in my heart as a result of it. I want to encourage you to do the same. There's many people who are struggling right now, and you're hurting yourself by continually feeding yourself the media. You're hurting yourself by watching the news and getting it all embroiled in your heart, and it's just stirring you up. You've got, to have, you've got to eat Tums every five minutes because your heart and your stomach is so embroiled in frustration and anger. Is it really worth it? Abide in the Lord. Abide in Him, and let the peace of God rule over you. Sounds good, doesn't it? I'd encourage you to do that. Abide in him. Trust in him. And let him be your peace. Amen? Let's stand and pray.
Father, we thank you for this passage. Lord, it's a, it's a dark passage for Saul. And Lord, yet David, Lord, you preserved him, and you will preserve him. And Lord, in fact, you preserved him, and he is in glory with you now. And Lord, your word says that in the new, in the millennial reign of Christ, you are going to, when he is resurrected, he is going to be in Jerusalem, and he is going to be one of your men. He is going to be a ruler. David, the King David that we're reading about now, we will not only see you in the millennial reign physically, but we'll also see David that you're going to rise, raise up as a prince for your people. And Lord, how we look forward to that and how we uh, thank you for what you're doing in our lives, God. And pray that, Lord, you would encourage us tonight, bless our day tomorrow, and have your way with us. Lord. And again, Lord, may we abide in you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.